Welcome to The Wild Story, a podcast of poetry and plants by the Native Plant Society of New Jersey. My name is Ann Wallace. I am the Poet Laureate of Jersey City, New Jersey, and I am your host. The Wild Story is produced by Kim Carrero and myself for NPS NJ. In this episode, I speak with Shati Mukherjee, a poet from the Pacific Northwest, about her new collection, Ways of Being. Shati talked with me about grief, language, and the quiet observation of the landscape of the Salish Sea, where she lives in Washington State. In the second segment of this episode, my co-producer Kim Carrero joins me for a conversation with Kim Rowe, of the Independent Garden Center Initiative. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm delighted to introduce our guest poet for today's episode of The Wild Story. Shati Mukherjee is a poet and lyricist and author of the poetry collections I, from Ravenna Press in 2022, and Ways of Being from Moonpath Press in 2023, a collection which won the Albiso Award. A third book, Daesh, is forthcoming from Pulley Press in 2025. Shati's poems appear in literary magazines and anthologies, most recently Salamander, Laurel Review, and Sugarhouse Review and her collaborations with contemporary classical composers have been performed or recorded by ensemble and solo musicians. She is a graduate of the University of Washington School of Medicine and founder of the Sandan Center, a child and adolescent mental and behavioral health clinic. Nominated for three Pushcart Prizes and recipient of an Artist Trust Washington State Arts Commission Fellowship Award, Shati Mukherjee lives in the Pacific Northwest. Welcome, Shati, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. I wanted to um, read a little passage uh, from the opening poem, just a, a couple of lines. The opening poem in Ways of Being. The poem is called The Great Lung of the Bay, and it's a it's a wonderful poem, but these lines toward the end of it stuck out to me as encapsulating a lot of the project of this book. Out of the clutter of squeaks and chittering, one voice arises, falls silent, then another voice arises. The birds, like me, only have a handful of things to say. Like me, they say them over and over again. There is no other way to fill a life. Still the water nears, a shallow front, shimmering in the middle distance. Those lines, as I was reading through your collection again this morning, they stood out to me, this idea of only having a handful of things to say and saying them again and again and saying them differently and mm -hmm. saying them to different audiences. Mm -hmm. um, do you want to talk a little bit about that, I, that notion? Sure. And I think ultimately about saying them to oneself. Yeah. Um, so you, you spoke to the, the notion of the project of the book and 
just to frame our whole conversation, every all the poems we talk about today, the project of the book as I see it is to really hold space for grief and loss. And by grief and loss, I'm referring to griefs, griefs and losses of all shapes and sizes. So in our lives, we have, as Judith Viorst called them, necessary losses. The children grow older and leave us. Um, the ex there's expected losses, death of a pet, death of a parent. We know those are coming, and yet they shake our worlds, nevertheless. And then, of course, there's the unexpected losses, the accident, the diagnosis, where our lives change, where we change, our relationships to our others and our own bodies change. And so the project of being human really is to learn to reconcile what feels unbearable. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so in a world, in a society, in a culture that is so intent on moving through um, achieving closure, getting past, getting to the other side. The project of this book is simply to hold space for not knowing, for confusion, for that messiness. And so these poems are very, I, I call this a self-portrait of that particular moment in time, not the acute horror of the, the acute loss, but the the time period just after that, when one feels um somewhat dissociated confused about what is self what is other what is the line between you and me where um subject object the coordinates are sort of shaken up and so along with that comes this consciousness about speech and language and also a self-consciousness about speech and language so those lines that you um that you uh just drew our attention to have to do with that feeling of self-consciousness like I'm just saying the same things over and over again but what other way is there to fill a life mm -hmm. absolutely that was so beautifully put and the word that keeps coming to my mind as I read and as I'm listening to you is that so many of these poems feel like a meditation um that speaking to the self, that thinking through, working through, thinking about our way of being, our ways, plural, mm -hmm. of being in this world. Um, and the loss and the longing is absolutely there, but there's also a great deal of beauty mm -hmm. um, and appreciation in this um, in this collection, in your work. I wondered if we might move into a full poem, not just a snippet, mm -hmm. um, without you reading Cage for us and thinking about how it is that we live in relation to the natural world. Yes. Shall I read it? Yeah, that would be wonderful. Okay. Yeah. Cage. I suppose to render a bird in cast iron is no sillier than trapping it in a poem, although there's an exculpatory complexity in these kinked, inked markings paper itself the body of a tree, a perch. The turned page makes a microbreeze, and the poem takes wing in the breath or in the airspace between eye and screen. A flicker outside my window has been steadily drilling. 
Maybe she would concur with the medium's aptness. Were she interested in the politics of concurrence? See in the cast iron her essential self, something hard to be wielded. Leaved soft and fluffy to juncos and wrens. She is a headbanger, less kin to flute and more to jackhammer. The flicker is gone, or gone quiet. The poem falls silent. To cage a poem in the head of a bird, perverse. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for reading it. I loved hearing it in your voice. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about this poem and what you were thinking about with the image of the bird, the capturing of the bird in a poem? So uh, I'm going to go ahead and sort of talk about part of the writing of the book and the writing of the poem. So the craft along with the poem itself, since you're a poet and <laughs> you might find that interesting. Um, so Again, a feature of that space is this sort of self-consciousness. And I found a kind of irritability or a prickly, itchy feeling where I just couldn't bear to be in my skin, it felt like. Um, and so the title cage reflects that of feeling trapped, feeling caged in something um, indefinable. Now. As a writer, what I found during this time was that bluntly, my brain wasn't working. My frontal lobes weren't working. I felt incapable of creating something, making something. So all I could do during this time was to observe. And that's what I decided I would do. And so um, you use the word meditation, and that is true. And that is often true. But part of that also, or rather I should say, and part of that is observation and simply uh, noticing. Yeah. And it was th that, and I did that because that's simply all I could do. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and so then this poem begins with a sort of irritability about this cast iron bird that somebody has given me a paperweight and this sort of how silly to render a bird in cast iron which is so anti-bird <laughs> the medium it doesn't move it's heavy it's dark it um so but then I think well now I'm writing a poem about it I'm writing a poem about a bird and I suppose that's just a, a poem is just as anti-bird and it's sort of fixating and reifying um and so so I begin there but then but then I'm sort of exploring well what does that mean there is is that true or is do I get off the hook somehow because of the the physicality of this enterprise the paper is the body of a tree um the the ink is this chemical um viscous substance the turned page makes a breeze i'm sort of working my way back out of my head back into the natural world and even as i notice um there is an actual bird outside the window who's drilling and um and yeah so that's kind of how it um the poem evolves but then I believe that poems have to have an internal sort of logic um, and 
can't simply be about observation. So that's where this project started. Later, when my frontal lobes were working, I had again, and I could sort of shape the poem. I wanted to um, bring it around to the flicker flies away, and thus the poem falls silent. And so what I have effectively done is cage my poem in the head of the bird. And then the perverse at the end is a little bit of a joke, both in terms of I'm I'm sort of doing what I raged at the sculptor of the, the piece for. And then also something sort of like perverse or biverse or using lyric as a, a means of sort of entrapment. Um, yeah, so that's what I was that's what I was playing with within in this poem. Mm-hmm. And some of that sort of irritability, I think was maybe the word you used, mm-hmm. comes through in the sounds of the poem as well. And when mm-hmm. you describe them, like well, then all those hard case sounds, mm-hmm. inked, inked markings, mm-hmm. um, complexity micro breeze also what a wonderful word micro breeze i love that um flicker so we have those hard sounds and then the head banging of that of the bird at the window Mm -hmm. there's this is not an easy poem there's not an easiness to the poem Mm -hmm. there's a discomfort in the sounds Mm -hmm. and in what you were just explained telling us about with it um, and the questions in that you're um, thinking through as you're writing, I, I really love the way that you call to que- call into question our work, our craft as mm-hmm. poets, and what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Right? And we think yeah. that what we're doing often is, I mean, we have to have a faith in it, or we wouldn't do it. Yeah. But on the other hand, we're just rendering the world in a. <laughs> we're creating something. The, something that is not the real thing it's a facsimile it is a facsimile and it's static right we're reifying we're, right. we're um mineralizing mm-hmm. in our own way something that is fluid and yeah. more complex right yeah in a more generous mindset we could say that poetry is never static but yes. <laughs> but i know that that's not the place you're in in this poem well but it's also not necessarily not the place i'm in and that's why i wanted right. to let the say the poem takes wing yes in the breath mm-hmm. in the airspace between mm-hmm. eye and screen and that is there is a way i mean i can write this and somewhere somebody's going to read it and have their own experience and in that sense it's not um static and in that sense it's not something that I can fix it's it it does take wing and have its own life in that sacred airspace between reader and text right and every reader comes to it with their own grief and disillusionment and um questioning and Yes, that takes flight then in a new way, like you just said. Mm-hmm. Going back to that notion that you were talking about of observation, that runs through, I think, every poem in this collection. You are, um, as speaker, observing the world around you, observing yourself, observing others, observing birds or many birds in this mm-hmm. poem, in this mm-hmm. collection. Mm-hmm. Um, but one that's uh, stood out to me where you are doing I mean there are many where you are observing and that is the the primary action of the poem if we could use that word to describe it mm-hmm. um hut is a piece where 
I feel you watching the world, observing, taking mm -hmm. it in. Would you mind reading that one for us? I'd love to read this one. Hut. No sounds of water licking rock. Yes, jabbering birds. Yes, lanes in the dry sky. That corridor of air, yours, and this one, mine. A strain along the muscle of my phantom wing. The birds are dirt bathing. Thirst golden at the back of my throat, the back of my neck, dirty. Dust over the dorsal surfaces of my feet. This shelter, barely that, a dwelling, a place to rest and wonder at how moisture is held in the atmosphere. You can't perceive it, but it's there, in the slick of a feather of a bird's back, the shine of yours or mine, at the center of things that are alive. It has to be. Mm. This poem has such a beautiful move from no sounds of water licking rock it starts in a difficult place um and you bring it to a moment a place where there's life and it has to be right this sort of resolve maybe is that a fair word to use in this poem this to describe the turn that you make um i i actually don't sense resolve so much as hope or mm -hmm. a yearning yeah um almost a desperation it has it's there it has to be it yeah. must be yeah it's funny I often think of hope as a thing that one must resolve oneself to mm -hmm. <laughs> you know that there's an effort in yes 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 in finding hope yeah and we feel that process here in this poem mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You, that it has yeah. to be there out of a sort of bewilderment like yeah. um and again this sort of dissociation almost this feeling cut off from the world and also questioning how do we how do how do the birds define this is my lane that's my, that's your i mean um Again, it goes back to what I said at the very beginning of our conversation, the speaker throughout the book is preoccupied with self and other and the boundary between them or the creation of self out of you and me. Mm -hmm. um, and um, in fact, the epigraph to the book is a poem by Maloche. Um, uh, the quote is, yes, who am I without you? So this questioning of where's you where's where am i um what's your space what's my space um is sort of overlaid with what uh, what else is going on in hut which is just this sort of overwhelming dryness and a kind of longing for water for something wet and alive in the center of things yes and that moisture yeah. appears by the end. Mm -hmm. You start with the birds and the dirt dirt bathing. Mm -hmm. That's a powerful image. Um, disturb, um, it's, it's an uncomfortable image, mm -hmm. imagining that. And then the moisture comes in um, as we work our way through it. I do want to tell our listeners that we are having a conversation with Shati Mukherjee about 
her collection, Ways of Being, and we've been discussing the poem Hut, which is in about halfway through. It's really sort of in the center of this collection. And it's also interesting, this is in a section, in section four of your, your collection is divided into sections, and this is in call, called Places I've Been. So mm -hmm. you are specifically locating us. Even though we don't know where this hut, it, it, so hut is a, a location, but um, you're bringing us to the the earth, the dirt mm -hmm. here. Can you talk a little bit about how location matters to you or how it works its way into this collection? Is it, we feel the landscape in these poems um, very strongly. Mm -hmm. Yes, well, these poems are very specifically located on the shores of the Salish Sea here in the Pacific Northwest, except for that middle section, Places I've Been, which kind of comes, loops around the world, different places. There's Bangkok. This hut um, is a structure that I'm thinking of in northern, way northern India, Sikkim, Gangtok, that region. Place is very important to me. I have come to realize I would not have necessarily said that it was clear to me before I started talking about this book and people started asking me questions. So um, specifically, somebody recently asked me how growing up in the Pacific Northwest, how this landscape in particular has influenced me as a writer, which is a really really interesting question and not an easy question to answer. But as I thought about it, I realized that the um, the influence is actually very clear. So I've always said that I need to be on an edge. So where the land meets the sea and those times in my life that I've lived more inland away from the sea, um, I felt claustrophobic. I felt a sort of closing in feeling. It's not that I need waterfront property or I need a water view, but I need to know where the edge is, the way one can feel in a coastal community. Um, so, and in turn in my work, especially in this book, Ways of Being, it's ways of being is so much about transitions from solid to liquid to gas and the shoreline, the seashore, an estuary, a tidal flat um, demonstrates those transitions over and over again, land to sea, sea to sky, horizons, edges. Um, the the margin that the neap tide makes as it distributes its you know flotsam or or whatever and so um, so yes these poems are set on the shores of the Salish Sea and the landscape the seascape the ecosystem is serving as a metaphor for sort of the ecosystem of the self in relation to others. And those those losses are um, embodied in the speaker's consciousness and also in the sort of pageantry of what happens on the seashore. Mm -hmm. So a lot of that comes onto the page as observations. Um, as we've talked about throughout this this conversation. And I wondered, though, I rarely, if ever, 
see your hand on the earth in the sense of um, Mm -hmm. your impact, whether Mm -hmm. for good or bad, right? So, um, and I wanted to, you know, we had, this is the Native Plant Society podcast. And I was just curious if you garden at all, or are you really somebody who treads lightly and um, sort of sits lightly on the earth? Yeah, um, I I do garden, um, and in this book, you are right. I am not rendering unto. I'm not doing anything to. And again, that speaks to my state of mind, where I did not feel that I had any agency. Yeah, and so that is. Um, so your observation is exactly right. Um, so that's me in relationship to the natural world in the book. Now the gardening question in that sense is a separate question. Um, and it does not, that part of me does not appear in this book. So yes, I garden. Um, and, I've I've ter- I've never really described this to anybody before, but the pleasure that I re- derive from gardening is almost like the pleasure of doing a crossword puzzle. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, and I get that. Do you? Oh, good. Yeah. Okay, okay, good. Because for me, it's less about my fingers in the dirt mm-hmm. or pulling weeds. Those are also pleasures. But the greatest pleasure for me in gardening is to look out at a patch and see three different you know and I actually love foliage more than I love flowers Mm -hmm. um but to to visually see the thing in some sort of formal shape not that it's a formal garden but to see something at three different levels of verticality and intersections that complement one another and then thinking about the when what will bloom or how it will look in season um that's the that gardening for me scratches that crossword puzzle doing itch somehow where things sort of neatly slot into one another and again I don't mean to give the sense that I have a manicured formal garden I don't it's it's exuberant and and messy and and I plant things too closely and I know that but I um yeah that's what for me that's what gardening Mm um how gardening is most pleasurable yeah fascinating do you ever write about it no I don't (laughs) think is that true no I I rarely Mm -hmm. rarely and I think that's because I haven't figured out how to write about it Mm -hmm. yet yeah that I mean that in itself is its own puzzle right how Yeah. yeah 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 I I'd be curious to see where you go with that if you ever take on that challenge yes um of representing that activity on yeah yeah well thank you I will think about that because that is a great you know prompt if you will Mm -hmm. which is not a word I'm really fond of but that's something to think about so thank you for that yeah well we do need to wrap up in a moment but I thought maybe we could end on the closing poem of your collection ways of being um, the collection is Ways of Being. The closing poem is called This Human Need. And I think it does really bring us back to some of, bring, carries through on some of the, many of the themes that we've been talking about today. So let's hear it. <laughs> okay. This Human Need. To make things like other things, greedy as a simile, 
sea-colored clouds and cloud-colored sea. A kind of twisting, reflexive as a verb, bending the world around the axis of self. Semonke, or lit palel, to locate God in the locating. The yoga of worshiping your worst fears, pokti. Sky-colored turn, to perceive the sky as the color of a bird, due to yourself. To note the stone-colored cloud, to note cloud-colored stone, wet with rain and tide-slapped. To inventory, to measure the neep's skinny, gritty margin, the sprawling edges of human settlements. To be regarded, whether too big to be completely seen, like the sky or the ocean, or too small to be seen at all. To be unseen, move too glacially to be perceived as moving, or move too quickly, fast as an osprey, seeing like an osprey sees, bending the world around the axis of its body like. Hmm. That ending, there is no period at the end of that poem, like, and is that for us to fill in the blank? That is for us to fill in the blank. <laughs> yes. I yeah. Um, and what an ending of a collection that it's an almost an invitation to readers mm -hmm. to take up this project mm -hmm. of thinking about our human need to make things like other things. So much to say about this poem. And I was also even thinking of what you were just saying about gardening as like a crossword puzzle. Mm -hmm. This that that I was that image stayed with me as you were reading this poem because it is how we line things up. It's those relationships that we make and what do we see and how do we describe, how do we use language? Mm -hmm. Why did you close the collection with this poem? I closed the collection with this poem because what I always say about these poems is that this collection has no wisdom to offer. It does not make an argument. It merely holds space for uncertainty, for not knowing. As we get to the end of the book, if the poems point anywhere at all, they point back to themselves. So they point back to that space. And so the reason I closed with this poem is that notion of lit palel, which is the Hebrew word for prayer or the, as, um, well, this is a very long story, but my friend who is a rabbi told me that the closest word in Judaism to prayer is lit palel. And what's interesting about it is that it's in a it's a reflexive verb. So it's not asking for something. It's not prayer in the sense of petition. It's a prayer. It's a reflexive verb. It's something you do to yourself. Yeah. Um, and so I wanted to leave it with that notion of turning inward in that space. And again, I can't even define it, which is why it, oh, it ends like that yeah. in that openness. But that broad space is an invitation for all of us, the speaker, the reader, yeah. to 
become like something, to do something like something, but I can't tell you what that is. That's that's a for each of us to answer on our own and to think about and to see where it takes us. And it may not, and that's not going to be static either, which is why it's called ways of being. There are many ways for us moment to moment. And, and I, and I think that this title ways of being, and, you know, as a sort of closing thought for us to come back to that title is so important. We have all lived through a tumultuous and grief filled period of history Um, that has touched every one of us over these past three and a half years. And if we are not thinking about our ways of being coming out of that or in the process of it, then I'm not sure (laughs) what people were doing in this time. I think that everybody has had to grapple with these big questions of how do we want to be in this world and who do we want to be for ourselves and what are the many ways that we can be and how do we take these handle and live with the grief and the sorrow that has touched so many of us um, and we'll you know grief is a part of our human condition right mm-hmm. but but yeah. um it has hit us harder obviously in these past few years and i think your collection does let us make space for it as you said hold space for those those important feelings and thoughts and processes that we must go through. So I want to thank you, Shati Mukherjee, for joining us today and sharing your work and talking about it with us. Um, This has been a wonderful conversation. Really enjoyed it. Well, thank you. I'm honored to be here and to be read so carefully by somebody. It's such a joy. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. So Shati, before we close, could you tell our listeners how to find you, what events you have coming up? I know you've got your new collection coming out in 2025, but I think you have some events coming up this year. Yes. Um, I, the best way to find me is on my website, which is shatimukherjee.com. And um, I'm sure you'll have my name spelled out somewhere yeah, in, the, in the link. Yes. So that's the best place to find me that has information about the books, upcoming events, mm-hmm. um, interviews, reviews, Wonderful. and then all my social media handles are on that website as well. Follow Shati on her social media, go to the website, get the information, and you won't be disappointed. (laughs) Thank you. Well, everybody is very warmly welcomed. Thank you so much. Wonderful. So thank you again for being with us today. It's been a delight to have you as our guest. Next up on The Wild Story, a few words from the Native Plant Society of New Jersey. Hello, I'm Randy Eckel, and I am the president of the Native Plant Society of New Jersey. The Native Plant Society is a statewide nonprofit organization dedicated to the appreciation, protection, and study of the native flora of New Jersey. Native plants are vital to preserving biodiversity and to sustaining a healthy ecosystem for wildlife and humans alike. This year, the Native Plant Society is celebrating its 40th anniversary, and we are pleased to have more than 1,200 members in 12 regional chapters that are doing important work across the state. We take a great deal of pride in the resources we provide for our members, including educational field trips, 
online webinars, plant sales, workshops, legislative resources, and much more. Please visit us at npsnj.org to learn more about the great diversity of native plants in New Jersey and about how you can become a member of the Native Plant Society of New Jersey and play an active role in supporting native plants in your community, region, and state. In upcoming episodes of The Wild Story, I'll be sharing information about native plants and how to introduce and care for them in your garden or community, as well as other information that listeners like you have requested. So please send your native plant questions to askrandy at thewildstory at npsnj.org. And keep tuning in to listen for my answers to your questions. So on this week's Ask Randy, uh, we've had quite a few questions on cultivars. What is a cultivar? Uh, we are the Native Plant Society of New Jersey. Where does where do cultivars come into play? What does what does a cultivar even mean? For hundreds of years, humans have been selecting characteristics of plants for what humans want out of plants, and this has brought us our food crops. Wild corn didn't look anything like the sweet corn that you buy at the market. All of our food crops have been selected. And those are all functionally cultivars, things that humans have done to select plant characteristics and breed plants for things that humans want. One of the great values of native plants, possibly the greatest value that native plants have, is they are resources for wildlife. They provide the food, they provide habitat, they provide shelter for all sorts of wild creatures, whether they're butterflies or bees or birds or mammals. Those creatures and those plants, native plants, have co-evolved over the millennia and they need each other. When we develop cultivars, and where crossing plants are selecting for certain characteristics. Every time we do that, we are changing a plant. So if we're changing a plant to select it, so perhaps it has brighter flowers because you want to see brighter red flowers. Whenever we make those changes, whenever we cross them or make selections, we're also making subtle changes in the plant itself sometimes changes in the plant chemistry of the leaf, which may affect how insects, for example, find the plant to lay eggs on the plant. So your butterfly needs to be able to find its host plant to lay an egg on it. And by changing leaf chemistry, butterflies may not be able to find that leaf. The caterpillar that hatches from that egg may not be able to feed as successfully on that plant, may not be able to raise its children at all. Some of the cultivars that we have developed over time have changed the flowers in ways that it's more difficult for insects to find nectar, for example. Research as far back as the 1980s has shown that some cultivars have changed or completely removed something called a nectar guide from the flowers. And these are lines on the flowers that you and I can't see at all, but the insects can see, and it allows them to find the nectar more efficiently and while they're doing so, pollinate the plant. So when we're creating 
more beautiful flowers for our gardens, for example, we're also changing the plants in ways that we cannot even see, but affect the way that wildlife can use those plants. Furthermore, with some cultivars, it has been shown that some of the characteristics that we've developed can also escape out into the wild. So there's a cultivar of white snake root called chocolate. And chocolate has es escapes into the wild and affects the wild populations. The same was true of Husker red beard tongue. In both of those cases, those plants produce more anthocyanins, which are actually a toxin in the leaves that help to protect new foliage from insects feeding on them. But by having those chemicals stay in the plant longer and through the seasons, so we have interesting colored foliage on our plants. We're also making those plants less useful to, for example, caterpillars or beetles or other creatures that might use them. I'm not saying that every cultivar is a terrible plant, but the most of the research hasn't been done. Mount Cuba and some others have started to do some of this research where they're looking at how attractive different cultivars are to, for example, pollinators. Uh, they did a great study on hydrangeas and found that none of the cultivars really did, well, I think one cultivar did better at attracting pollinators than the straight species of hydrangea arborescens, which is our wood hydrangea. So there's just a lot of questions and a lot of things we don't have answers to. But basically, cultivars are plants that we have selected for aesthetic characteristics that we are interested in, but they don't necessarily translate to what wildlife needs and what wildlife has co-evolved to use over the millennia. The reason that native plants are so important in the environment is that they support wildlife in ways that cultivars and non-native plants simply cannot. Thank you to Randy Eckel for joining the Wild Story team and hosting the Ask Randy feature of our podcast. If you have a question for Randy, send it in to thewildstory at npsnj.org and just put Ask Randy in the subject line and we'll be sure to get it to her. And maybe your question will be answered in an upcoming episode. In our next segment, my co-producer for The Wild Story, Kim Carrero, will join me. In addition to working with me on The Wild Story, Kim is a Rutgers University certified master gardener and the co-leader of the Hudson County chapter of the Native Plant Society. Hey, Kim. Hey, Anne. I am so happy to be a part of the show in this way. And today, our guest is Kim Rowe, of the Independent Garden Center Initiative, which is sponsored by the Native Plant Society of New Jersey and the Rutgers University Environmental Stewards. Hi, Kim. Hello, thank you for inviting me here today. Oh, we're so delighted to have you. We are so excited to have you here today, Kim Rowe. I, um, Kim Rowe, for those who may not know, is the leader of the Monmouth chapter of the Native Plant Society. So. Welcome. It's uh, an honor to have you here today. Um, and let me just introduce a little bit of background on you. 
Kim Rowe is a member of the State Board of Native Plant Society of New Jersey and the chairperson of the organization's Independent Garden Center or IGC initiative. The IGC initiative is focused on making more plants available to gardeners at their local garden centers and through their local landscapers. Kim fell in love with plants at age five. She holds a Bachelor of Science degree in horticulture and has had a lifelong interest in gardening and the natural world. In 2014, she began converting her traditional English-style garden to New Jersey native plants and has never looked back. Today, her garden contains hundreds of native plants, and she is endlessly fascinated by bees, birds, butterflies, moths, and other wildlife that visit. Welcome, Kim. Well, thank you for that nice introduction. You are more than welcome. We are so excited to hear more about your project. Uh, now, this IEGC Independent Garden Center Initiative is your Rutgers Environmental Steward Project. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, yes, it, it, it is my uh, Rutgers Environmental Steward Project in conjunction with Bobby Herbs, who's also with the Native Plant Society. So the Independent Garden Center Initiative, which we call IGC, was started by the Native Plant Society of New Jersey about a year ago with the goal of encouraging independent garden centers, IGCs, to carry more native plants. We started it about a year ago with a team from Native Plant Society of New Jersey, and they have been really integral in getting this off the ground. And then about six months ago, the uh, Rutgers Environmental Stewards Program became a co-sponsor because one of the team members, Bobby Herbs and I, are becoming environmental stewards. So this is our internship project, but it really was started and funded initially by the um, Native Plant Society of New Jersey. Tell us why it is, that, in your opinion, that local nurseries don't sell more native plants. It is such a struggle to find native plants at traditional nurseries who don't specialize, you know, who don't market themselves as native plant nurseries. It just seems so surprising. Absolutely. You've hit the nail on the head there. And because, and that is actually the, the overriding goal of the uh, IGC initiative is to help encourage local garden centers to carry more native plants. So to answer your question, why don't they? I don't have a definitive answer to that, but we have over the last year done a lot of research and interviews with a variety of people in the industry, including many IGC owners and managers. And the reactions that we've gotten, it, it's kind of come down to four reasons that I've identified that I think people don't carry natives. The first one is the biggest one. They think there's no customer base. Um, you know, many people who've been, especially those who've been in the business for a long time, don't believe that the customers are out there who want to buy native plants at least not enough of them mm -hmm. uh, to make it a real business uh, decision. That's their belief. Um, mm -hmm. Another reason is they feel that they're wholesalers. They have wholesale re relationships, existing relationships with wholesale um, organizations that grow the plants on, many of them do. And uh, there are quite a few of those wholesalers who are not carrying a significant um, variety of natives, if any mm -hmm. at all. 
and then they also think that there's a preconceived notion that native plants don't perform as well in the landscape as yeah. other non-native ornamentals do. And all of us who are native plant enthusiasts would counter that with, um, yeah. we, have a, we have a counter argument for that. That's for sure. We all believe they look gorgeous in the landscape. Mm -hmm. uh, but there is a widespread belief out there that uh, they look messy or they don't really perform the same way. And that brings you to the, to the fact that a lot of these folks don't know the palette of native plants well. They have a palette of plants that they've used for 10, 20, 30 years, and it's hard to change. Change is hard. Um, and the fourth reason that we've identified is that IGC owners and managers, uh, their business is built around presenting a lot of different cultivars uh, of plants. And they believe that people who are native plant enthusiasts uh, don't want cultivars, that we only want straight species. But a recent survey that we did that I'll probably talk about a little bit more later showed that uh, a, a huge percentage of our population, the people that buy native plants, also buy native plant cultivars. And when we talk to um, organizations that serve these populations of managers and owners of IGCs, we heard them talking more and more about natives and mm -hmm. about the environmental impact of using plants that are invasive, for example, or not, uh, not natives. So I think the thought, the, the, the thinking is going in the right direction. It's just kind of helping people move there that, that makes sense. So what we started with was creating a business case, trying to speak with business owners in their own language. And it just so happens that Bobby and I both spent our careers in marketing roles with different um, organizations. So we kind of, this came naturally to us mm -hmm. to look at, you know, what's the business rationale for this? Mm -hmm. And we started by building a business case, by looking at all the research that was out there, conducting some of our own primary research and doing a whole series of interviews. And that we're ready to we're ready to start presenting that now to the folks we would like to hear it. Great. And I'd like to kind of talk about that research just for a, a moment. And you surveyed the state, correct? Yes, you're right. We did a lot of research um, as we've been working through this pro this project. We started with a whole series of interviews and then uh, gathering secondary research. And then we also um, did our own survey of Native Plant Society of New Jersey members or members and folks who are on our mailing lists. So that was a list of 3,600 people that we reached out to. And we received 620 plus responses, which is an unheard of percentage. It's very, very high. I think about 17% of the people that were asked to respond responded. That's an impressive project, <laughs> the survey itself and the return on it. So one thing I learned about your research is that the average person purchases 25 plants per year personal use so that would be the average person who responded yes okay um but 27 percent of those people said that natives are not easy to locate in their local nurseries uh, do you want to say a little bit more about that well yes 
the population we surveyed uh, purchases many native plants for their own gardens. And of the folks that responded, they averaged 25 plants per season that they purchase. So if you think about that at $10, the, each customer is purchasing at least $250 worth of plant material from someplace every, uh, every season. Then uh, there, were many, there were many people who purchased much more than that. They all, in, in the uh, results, however, we saw that they did not buy those plants locally, even though they wanted to. So the results mm -hmm. said, we can't find the plants we want locally. So instead we go to Pennsylvania, we drive an hour away, we order online or we buy from um, nonprofit organization sales. But we really wish that our local garden centers would carry them. So um, that came out really clearly in the portion where we asked, if you could talk to your local garden center, what would you tell them? And overwhelmingly, it was, please carry native plants. I'll shop from you. I'll buy them, buy what I buy from you instead of going all over the place to get them. So uh, yeah, that's the message. You know, and I'm even thinking about my own personal buying habits. The result is I buy fewer plants than I would like to because they are hard to find and I don't want to buy non-natives at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's purchasing power that's lost, right? <laughs> I'm not yeah. spending the money that I, I actually would like to spend on the plants that I want to purchase. You know, that is so true. And I was just thinking about that this morning, actually, because, uh, I made a big purchase from a nursery in, um, in Pennsylvania this, earlier this year. And when I took the plants away, I left some on the on the table, I forgot oh, something no. behind. So they actually owe me, I think, five plants, and I'm too. It, it's too much trouble to go get them. Yeah. It's a it's a long distance. I have to take up a whole half a day at least yeah. to get there and get back. So you know, I would if those if that was a local garden center, I would be purchasing much more. I'd just go and stroll the aisles and say, "Oh, this looks interesting. I'll try that." Yeah, but, it wouldn't have to be yeah. a half day project for you to go purchase. Yeah, it's or right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that yeah. came through really clearly in this survey. And it came through in both in two ways. One, they were saying when you said, uh, you know, they said they had trouble finding them at the local nursery. It came through in two ways. One way was, well, I'm having trouble finding them because the nursery doesn't even carry them. And then the other one was, I know the nursery carries some, but I can't find them in the nursery because they're spread out all over the nursery. They're on various benches besides things that are not native. They're not appropriately labeled. Or as Kim mentioned to me recently, they have a section, but it's all the way hidden in the back somewhere and, mm -hmm. uh, and not easily easy to find. So Kim, talk a little bit about September 7th and the presentation. Right, so I mentioned that we've done all this research and we are ready, we've, we've completed the business case and we're ready to start communicating what we've learned to independent garden centers. So um, we have a, about uh, 200 independent garden centers that we're going to be inviting to an event on September 7th. And uh, it's called Sustainable 
loyal and local, the case for carrying native plants. And uh, so we're going to be presenting research, the research that we did, as well as research that's being done at Rutgers. And the hope is that we're gonna be building sort of a coalition of independent garden centers who are interested in building their native plant business and that they might like to continue this relationship. We're gonna be asking them for their input in terms of what they, what we can do, um, us as a nonprofit, Native Plant Society as a nonprofit organization and Rutgers as an educational institution, what can we do to support them? What kinds of things can we offer to them that would help them increase their business, improve their business? So is it signage? Is it education? Is it education for their staff? Is it, we, we're not quite sure what it is yet. Uh, mm -hmm. Is it research? And so we're hoping to have a conversation on September 7th, in addition to presenting our information, but also to open it up to two-way conversation that allows them to speak back to us and say, hey, here's how you can help us uh, get this going. You know, those of us who are, who are enthusiasts are going to get our plants, you know, by hook or by crook. We're going we're gonna to get them and we're going to get them in our yard. But this has to be so much bigger than that if we are gonna reestablish habitat across the state, that's so important. It's so important to establish native habitat in our yards in order to replace some of what's lost out there to development. The only way we're gonna do that is to reach the average gardener. And the only way we're gonna do that is to get the people that they buy from to start carrying them and informing and educating their, their customers. So, you know, I, might avoid the local garden center and go elsewhere, go to Pennsylvania, pick up my plants. Not everybody's gonna do that. But if you walk in, if you're a newbie, you don't know anything about natives, you walk in and you see something prominently displayed uh, and you ask the staff member and they're able to tell you about it and tell you the importance of it, that makes all the difference in the world. Yeah, So it, it's key, getting plants into these garden centers. And later our next step is to work on landscapers as well. You know, it, it's so such an important initiative. And listeners, how can our listeners get involved? How can they reach you? That's a great question. And uh, I would say the first way to get involved is to um, talk to your local IGC. When you walk in there, ask them for native plants. And I find oftentimes if I walk into a native, uh, to a, an independent garden center, I'm not talking to the manager or the owner. And I doubt that what I ask for necessarily gets transferred to that person who could make a difference. So one suggestion I have is write up a little note card, put it in an envelope, address it to the manager, just say manager of the garden center and drop it off and say, I'm looking for native plants. I really would like to see you carrying them locally. That's one way to get involved. Um, the next way is if you wanna be involved in this initiative, contact me. We're always looking for help. We're looking for volunteers and people who are interested and excited about the where we're going with this. So all you have to do is reach out to me at monmouth at npsnj.org. That's Native Plant Society of New Jersey.org, NPSNJ. Well, thank you so much, Kim, for your work that you're doing on this initiative, the 
independent garden center initiative, um, as we've been talking about, it's been so important to make that larger scale change. It take it starts small and, it, and it's a movement that's growing. So thank you so much for your work and for joining us here today. It's been well, delightful. Thank you. This was a real treat. We would like to thank today's guests, award-winning poet Shati Mukherjee, whose collection Ways of Being is available from Moonpath Press, Dr. Randy Eckel of the Native Plant Society of New Jersey, and Kim Rowe, leader of the Monmouth chapter of NPSNJ. The Wild Story, a podcast of poetry and plants, is produced by Ann Wallace and Kim Carrero, it is an independent project of the Native Plant Society of New Jersey, a statewide nonprofit organization dedicated to the appreciation, protection, and study of the native flora of New Jersey. We would like to thank our team. Dr. Randy Eckel is president of NPSNJ. Our sound engineer and editor is Valerie Forrestal. Our theme music is composed and performed by Tara Sullivan. Our closing music is Life Can Be Sweet by Kate Jacobs. Our logo artwork is created by Vicki Katzman Illustration. Our logo design is by Monty Kim. Web support is provided by Kazis Barnalis, Vice President of Membership for NPSNJ. And tech support is provided by Mike Vago. Learn more about the wild story and about the Native Plant Society of New Jersey at npsnj.org and follow us on Instagram at Native Plant Society NJ. Take my baby to the woods, old man. Teach you the names of the wildflowers before you go. She should know. Call of the